you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. The Dietitian Cafe is a podcast for healthcare professionals to learn from and expand their horizons within the world of nutrition and dietetics. Each episode, we meet a wide variety of healthcare professionals and discuss many areas of nutrition, from studying to academia, clinical to industry, to the NHS and freelancing. In this episode, we will be comparing the roles of dietitians and doctors and learn more about how the two can complement one another. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Timothy Eden, a qualified junior doctor, dietitian, and chef. Tim's interest in food is why he initially trained as a chef at Cordon Bleu Cookery, where his love for personalizing menus and diet plans led him to pursue a career in dietetics, working in diabetes, ICU and renal roles. He then went on to study and graduate from medicine at Barts and the London School of Medicine and currently works as an NHS junior doctor. Alongside this, Tim has an active role within the BAPEN Medical Trainee Committee and interdisciplinary think tank NEDPRO. In this episode, we're going to find out more about Tim's transition from dietitian to doctor and how he recognizes the boundaries between the two professions. We'll also talk about a doctor's role in providing nutrition advice and whether or not doctors are overstepping the mark when it comes to providing patients with nutrition information. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome you, Tim, to the Dietitian Cafe. Thank you for joining us today. That's great. Thank you very much, Harriet. That was a very comprehensive and very kind um, introduction. So um, thank you for having me on the podcast. You're very welcome. And before we delve into our main discussion, Tim, we have a few of our quick fire round questions to ask you. So my first question to you is, can you tell us about a highlight of your career so far? Um, so I think actually one of the highlights was when I first started working as a junior doctor, I actually, my first role in West London as a F1 was going back to the hospital that I worked at as a dietitian, And it was actually with the exact same diabetes team. So it was really interesting going back, working with all the same consultants, um, but turning up obviously in a new job role as doctor instead of their diabetes dietitian. So um, and the dynamics and how the, you know, how the team works and stuff was just great. So I had, a, I had a really great time on that placement. Brilliant. And I was going to ask you, did the dynamics change when you moved from one role into another? So I think essentially my consultant, when I first got onto the ward, um, said, oh, you're a very familiar face, just you look older now. Um, so in a way, no, the dynamic was still very much the same. And it was very interesting, actually, because if there was any sort of nutrition, um, you know, areas that needed to be highlighted for the patient, he would sort of run it past myself. But I would always happily defer back to, um, you know, the relevant dietitian. But, um, but no, it was a really good dynamic, actually. And it's, it's always helpful when you start a new job that you kind of already know, um, you know, the team and you have some familiar faces around. Definitely, you know, the ropes very well. Exactly. So. Can you tell us a bit more about what keeps you motivated when it comes to your work? So I think as you probably like alluded to, um, I apparently really enjoy studying. So um, I think probably being motivated to learn new things is probably my biggest driver. Um, I really enjoy the sort of prospect and I guess the challenge really of kind of learning new things, um, seeing how I can adapt in those situations as well. But um, by keeping me motivated there, I think one of the things is when you're surrounded by teams that embrace um i guess that kind of motivation and enjoyment for learning that's the kind of best environments i think you can be around so for me 
you know, I've been lucky in certain situations where I've found kind of teams that have really embraced that. Um, so that's really helped to motivate me. I imagine that was ideal in sort of A&E settings and things where it's very fast paced and you're always being challenged. Yes, it can be quite frantic in certain situations. And actually, when you are quite junior, you absolutely don't always know what you're doing, but you just need to have that ability to be able to ask people and just, um, you know, to making sure, you know, you can communicate and, you know, have that sort of pathway to, to I guess, embrace your team. Um, I also really enjoy that, sort of meeting new people and working with different teams and stuff. Great. And my final question to you, um, which may or may not be relevant because it sounds like you do a huge amount of work, but when you're not at work, how do you relax? So Harriet, I don't know if you remember the lockdown um, fad of kind of making sourdough and kind of baking, but I guess I I really embraced my chef skills again by just completely embracing um, baking. So I'm a big, big baker. Um, And I remember sort of during lockdown part one, we were doing sort of exchanges on ITU of trying to get sort of flour when basically you couldn't buy flour in any of the shops and stuff. So we were all kind of exchanging um, flour parcels to each other and then kind of bringing in sourdough. So, um, yeah, I I really enjoy cooking, baking, um, you know, actually having friends over for dinner and stuff. It's a nice, a nice way to kind of keep relaxed and step away from medicine. Um, It's always a good thing. So do you think your next challenge could be the Great British Bake Off? So sadly, I'm not eligible for it because I've actually had professional cooking. Oh, I see. My, yeah, because of my cordon bleu training, sadly, it means that, I mean, clearly I've looked into this. So um, I was very tempted, but realised actually I'm not eligible for it. So if you ever see me in there, you know, you've obviously got the power to now get me knocked out very quickly because, yeah, I sh- shouldn't be allowed there. I see. So you're not the next Paul Hollywood in the making, perhaps. No, sorry. I don't have the right <laughs> eyes and you know, don't, don't have enough hair either. So um, no. <laughs> so going back to your cooking and your cordon bleu training, can you tell us a bit more about this shift from chef to dietitian to doctor? Yeah, it's um it's weird because kind of when I first talk about it to people, everyone kind of thinks, oh, it's a really kind of quite strange route, but actually as it's kind of progressed and as I sort of transitioned from one to the other, actually they always felt quite natural progressions at the time. So for example, I guess when I was chefing and when I was learning about sort of food from that point of view, I I really enjoyed the menu planning, I guess, personalizing sort of meals for for clients. Um, And actually, if you think about how much that translates to what we do in dietetics, um, you know, manipulating sort of dietary intake and nutrition and it was the nutrition component actually that really struck me with I had a couple of clients um, that for example one was a celiac and that always really interested me kind of manipulating you know recipes and menus around that so that was kind of how I I guess I started to think actually I'd really like to transition from you know working in the sort of cooking industry to um, dietetics and I, I guess really following on from that it was more when I was working as a dietitian I you know I really enjoyed the the aspects of kind of again incorporating what I'd learned sort of at cookery school and sort of making food quite a big focus of my you know what I would do on a day-to-day basis but I then started to notice I would always be very interested in the diagnostic component to um, you know patients coming to me in clinic or seeing them on the wards I I would just realize that I was starting to maybe read a little bit too much into the medical notes and that intrigue was always there about the kind of more medicalized aspects and that that kind of hinted that maybe you know I kind of wanted to do some further training I guess. 
Absolutely. And, and I guess for a lot of dietitians, they'll resonate with what you're saying about having this real passion for food and this love of science and medicine and, and therefore coming across dietetics as a profession. Um, but can you tell me a bit more about what led for, led to you transitioning from being a qualified dietitian into that doctor role? Because that must have been quite a big leap for you to have taken, having to go back to university, study again. So what was the, the final point that made you decide that was what you wanted to do? I think it was, I mean, it was definitely quite, there was part of it that was a little bit daunting. Um, I was doing a job role that I actually really enjoyed in dietetics. I was working um, in diabetes. I was working with a really great MDT where we would sort of do carb counting. We were using sort of insulin pumps and we were, I guess, really the role as the dietitian actually felt very focal at that point. You really felt like you made an impact um, into, you know, A, the patient's quality of life, but actually within the MDT itself you know you were really listened to and valued by the consultants or the registrars um, and the diabetes nurses when we were kind of tweaking and titrating insulin um, there was just something actually I sort of realized though I started to find it really interesting when patients had sort of diabetic complications and I started to find that you know almost when I was reviewing my patients I was always looking at kind of their rotation sites where they put their insulin and I guess really kind of looking at some of the medical notes and the, the blood results in a slightly more, I guess, remit that was outside of my specific focus as the dietitian. Um, and I did some shadowing with um, one of the registrars and actually it just kind of really highlights to me that it sort of piqued my interest in the, the sort of medical aspect of it. And that was something I really wanted to explore. Um, obviously explore enough in the sense of going on then to do postgraduate medicine. So it was quite a big leap, but I think because there were so many things that had come up like that, um, you know, I, I felt at that point, actually I was, I was you know, in a position where I wanted to sort of go on and do, um, do that study and transition to a different job role. And for people listening who perhaps aren't familiar with going back to university after training as a dietitian, can you just run through what does graduate medical training look like? How many years is it? Do you have to do the clinical placements? How does it work? Yeah, sorry, that's a really good point. So the main difference between these sort of graduate and undergraduate courses are, so technically medicine categorically is an undergraduate course anyway, um, but just the postgraduate sort of route into it is when you're a graduate essentially from, I think most medical schools that run these graduate programmes, you tend to have to have a background either in a sort of science or healthcare related um, degree. Um, so obviously my background in dietetics kind of um, sat well and kind of put me in good stead for that. Normally now the curriculum for a typical kind of undergraduate degree would be six years. Um, as you know, going for on from doing sort of two years where you do kind of preclinical um, training and then you do four years of clinical. Um, that often incorporates a kind of integrated degree as well. Whereas when you do the graduate course, you don't have to do the extra kind of intercalated degree. And they often condense um, the first two years into one year. So for me, actually, the degree course was still, it was still long. It was still a four-year degree. But the reality was that was two years less than the majority of kind of undergraduate courses um, that are offered. So the first year for me at Barts was um, quite intense because you had the first two sort of um, preclinical years just condensed into one. Um, so it, it's a very sort of intense, I mean, that was definitely a very intense 12 months, that's for sure. I can imagine. And were you still working as a dietitian whilst you were training? That's the big question. So, so actually, um, I 
I mean, technically at the time at university, they were very much telling us we weren't allowed jobs on top of kind of doing our sort of graduate training. I think it's quite a big argument for anyone that's at university that wants to self-fund themselves. You know, it's difficult when you're being told, oh, you, you can't work because you need to prioritise your studying, when actually you still need to, you know, you still need to earn money to live, et cetera. And, and to be honest with me, I, I ended up sort of working as a part-time renal dietitian um, in one of the hospitals I was also doing medical placements on. And it just worked really, really well. It was incredibly, it was really helpful actually from, you know, doing the medical degree um, a, from a sort of, you know, helping me, uh, I guess, kind of keep my nutritional kind of content and aspects of my sort of dietetic background going. But actually, when I was then doing medicine um, in some of the renal modules, it was really helpful. So I kind of felt privy to a lot of the information already that we'd kind of covered. So, so yeah, I, I did sadly continue to work in that 12-month period. But um, it was clearly worth it in the end. But. Well, you're here to tell the story. <laughs> exactly. I live to tell the tale and all that. So, yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Now, going back to what you said about um, nutrition education, we know that generally medical degrees are known to lack in particularly nutrition dietetic education. I think there was an article in the BBC not that long ago mentioning that some medical students have as little as five or six hours of nutrition training throughout their degrees. So was that your experience when you were training at Bart's? So I think it's it's really interesting. It's really, I mean, it's been fascinating that it, you know, it's really been reported for the last sort of 10 or so years that I think people have now been highlighting for that period of time that nutrition just isn't a particularly core focus in any module that you're ever taught um, at medical school. And the problem being that, you know, you can ask quite a lot of undergraduates, you know, how much specific nutrition teaching have you had? And, they, and they'll give you answers like, you know, four or five hours. I mean, the reality is throughout the curriculum, there'll be little areas that actually signpost to nutrition. Um, and, you know, actually, because it's not overtly signposted, you kind of don't really then think about it. When you're a student, you, you don't then associate it with a nutritional learning point. So I think the reality is they probably do get a little bit more. But the reality is because it's not signposted and it's not integrated in a particularly effective way, I think the perception is rightly so actually at this time point that really across the board, most medical schools um, have not really been promoting sort of nutrition within the curriculum enough. Um, but, you know, hopefully things are going to be changing. Indeed. And, and that brings me on to my next question. Recently, the AFN, the Association for Nutrition, um, released a proposed curriculum for medical schools to upskill medical students on nutrition. Were you involved in that curriculum? Do you know much about it? Yeah, it was something, um, you know, I was really, I was really sort of happy and sort of privileged to be sort of involved in what was essentially an absolutely huge undertaking from AFN really. Um, so back in 2018, they were essentially sort of asked to, and, and took over the reins really of kind of looking to revise the curriculum recommendations for, um, you know, the GMC outcomes basically for junior doctors. And essentially, I mean, it was a, a pretty huge working group that AFN kind of brought together. And I was just an incredibly small part of that where at, at the beginning, um, back in sort of 2018, 2019, um, I was sort of representing my medical school, so Bart's and sort of widely representing, I guess, newly qualified junior doctors. And really, we were sort of looking at the entire sort of current curriculum and actually where you could see that nutrition was clearly sort of a key element that could be integrated or flagged to certain areas um, 
So, you know, it was a really fascinating um, project to be a very tiny, tiny part of. Um, but it, I sort of felt like I learned quite a lot because there was just so many people keen to engage. Um, you can see by the publication, the kind of working group that's involved, you know, you've got the BDA, um, so British Dietetic Association, BAPEN, various medical schools representing um, themselves. So everyone's, the, you know, the working group was huge and very keen to kind of make these positive changes. Yeah, it's very encouraging to see and, and hopefully um, there'll be an update coming soon, you know, once that starts to be implemented. Now, in terms of implementing your own nutrition knowledge when you're working with your patients in terms of your role as a doctor, how do you avoid stepping over the line of kind of becoming a dietitian during that consultation? How do you manage that? Yeah, it's very, um, I mean, actually one thing that's helpful quite often actually is just the time limit that you have actually as a junior doctor when you're seeing these patients um, on a ward round or sort of in a clinic setting, um, you often just the luxury of time sometimes just isn't quite there. So even if you saw something that was very obvious from a sort of nutrition point of view, you sometimes don't always have the time to quite explore it in the same way, um, obviously, that you might do and, and would do really as a dietitian. I guess really where it's helpful is by having that background, it kind of means that when I come across areas that, you know, are nutritionally relevant, I definitely feel very confident in terms of flagging, um, flagging it up and making sure that, um, you know, these can be addressed in quite a timely fashion. So whether that prompts a sort of referral to the dietitian or, you know, even in the interim, if there's something that I know where a dietitian is reviewing a patient and I sort of anticipate partly what their part of their plan might be. So it might even be something simple like anticipating, you know, refeeding bloods and just making sure I'm taking those baseline buds, starting a patient on Paprinex, for example, um, you know, small things like that. So it's not kind of stepping, I don't think it's overstepping a boundary. It's kind of recognizing that actually that profession needs to directly be involved in the care. But it's definitely helped me, I guess, make that connection between the two. Um, and that can actually be really helpful with the teams I work on. It's um, they've often noticed the dietetic referral rates probably go up slightly um, whenever I'm working on the team. But and actually, I wanted to ask you: Do you still work as a dietitian in the current trust that you're working as a junior doctor, or do you are you not allowed to do the two jobs in the same hospital? Yeah, I don't know actually. I've never so I've never actually worked in a other than previously when I worked as a dietitian at um, one of the trusts in West London. I'd sort of very much worked there as a dietitian and then gone on to um, qualify as a doctor. Um, but no, I've never worked at the same trust as a um, you know the multiple hats in one in one sort of um, employment. But I do still do some dietetic work um, on the side, so I do some private work, but I also do um, some work in a hospital. Um, based in West London as well so mainly doing kind of intensive care dietetic work but I've never crossed over into the the same trust I thought like that might be quite complicated and yeah that could be strange if you were referring one patient from your medical perspective to yourself as a dietitian I'm not yeah. sure how that would quite work yeah I'm not sure I, th I think yeah I think I'll leave that be for um for definitely for the foreseeable future yeah yeah so um I'm intrigued as a diet dietitian to hear about the reception that you received um when you qualified as a doctor you mentioned that you actually were working in the same diabetes team did you feel, for example, that you were more respected by patients and colleagues once you had that, do that doctor title? So it's a hard question because I guess if you ask the majority of junior doctors how we think we're perceived, um, 
I think sadly, actually, we don't feel we're perceived always that greatly with patients all the time. Um, I don't feel like I'm particularly controversial in saying that. Um, I think kind of expectations from patients are very high in a sort of environment where we can't always uh, maybe provide what every patient wants. Um, so actually, you know, compared to when I was a dietitian or doctor, I don't think I've noticed a, a huge difference in terms of the kind of reception I get from um, from patients. But I guess you could argue slightly sometimes there's a slight willingness from patients to be a little bit more agreeable to your plan if they feel that it means they can be discharged home, for example, or if they are very keen to do something in your by them going along with it, it can help facilitate that. Then actually, I guess it can sometimes help with the sort of compliance or adherence of, of that sort of um, advice you might be giving. But I haven't noticed a, a huge difference between the two. No, that's good to hear because I was wondering if, if there was some kind of hierarchy, for example, um, but but hopefully times have changed. Um, so that's that's good to hear that that's not been your experience. So... I wanted to ask you a bit about your workload as a doctor versus a dietitian. For example, do you find that you work longer days as a doctor? Do you have a higher patient caseload? Um, how do the two compare? I think um, it's really, it is actually really interesting comparing the two. They are, they're very different. And also, I guess, I guess even as a dietitian, though, it was also very different depending on what um, specialty you worked in and, and what the maybe the sort of ratio of how much kind of ward work you did versus clinic work um, it's always quite similar in terms of medicine really it depends I guess sometimes actually what specialty um, you might be working in some there's been some specialties I've worked in where actually you know the teams are quite reliant I guess on the junior doctors to do the majority of the ward work um, in terms of the ward round the jobs um, you may not always have um, as much senior support as you want and therefore I guess actually sometimes you feel like your, your workload really is, is quite high um, and actually in different hospitals that I've worked in actually just the sort of doctor to patient ratio is quite different sometimes so I would say actually it's been a lot more variable whilst I've been a doctor whereas when I was working um, as a dietitian it was a little bit more consistent I think in terms of the kind of general workload that I that I normally maintain. Um, so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but it's it's difficult. To, it's an interesting sort of point, but it is quite difficult to compare, especially because of the nature of the work as well, um, being that bit different. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can imagine that. Um, during COVID, did your role change at all as a doctor or a dietitian? Yeah, so that was when, so during sort of COVID, that was when I was, I was sort of slowly coming to the end of my four month rotation on intensive care. And then basically Health Education England decided to kind of freeze sort of all their usual training rotations. So as a junior doctor, you often rotate kind of every sort of four months into different specialties. And that's really to gain obviously sort of further clinical experience in a, you know, a different setting. Um, at that time point, they sort of kept us all in whichever sort of specialty you're working with um, to kind of help, I think, prevent kind of, you know, that first few weeks of when you're in a new job and that bit of uncertainty, they kind of wanted to avoid that. So I was I was still in intensive care and it was um, that got extended for four months. And then I guess my role changed quite a bit because we had lots of new junior doctors coming in to help out. But actually, they'd never really worked on intensive care before. 
Um, and obviously, by being a junior doctor, you're by no means um, an, an intensivist or an expert in intensive care, but it's just really helpful being familiar with the environment and the surroundings. Um, and actually, therefore, our role at that point was helpful because any new person coming um, that was being redeployed, you could kind of show them the ropes and you could kind of help like integrate them to the team and you know um and i think that was just overall actually really helpful and probably quite a sensible idea from health education england mm. and um remind me what the phrase is when junior to- junior doctors start their first role in august there's a name for the specific day what's it called again I, I don't know harry i have no idea what you're talking about uh, is it something <laughs> black you know uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I, think, I think historically um you know, when they previously looked at kind of things like hospital outcomes during the time where, you know, junior doctors rotate, um, especially in August, um, I don't think health outcomes were always the best. And therefore, it's always sort of been joked upon that, you know, that's probably not the best time to electively go to hospital um, would be the first week in August. I'd probably quite actively avoid it. But at the same time, there are lots of things in place, um, just to reassure every listener that, you know, there's lots of things in place also to prevent that from, you know, being the case nowadays. And is it that dreaded feeling when you go in on your first day as a qualified junior doctor? I, I imagine for you less so because you already had that experience as a dietitian. It was, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was pretty terrifying, to be honest. I mean, in any sense, of, I mean, we did it so that I think for the week leading up to us um, starting the job, we were kind of shadowing directly the position. So the, the doctors that were going to be leaving, we basically become their, their shadows for a week. And um, almost to the point where you're literally following them everywhere, even to the toilet, just because you're petrified that you're going to miss something that, that may be relevant to your new job. And uh, obviously you don't want to disappoint anyone, et cetera. But I mean, my my saving grace was it was a really familiar environment. I was literally working on the gastro ward and the endocrine ward that I used to work on as a dietitian. And really strangely, so many of the nursing staff um, were still there. And my birthday falls in the middle of August. So it was incredibly sweet. So I remember being on the middle of the ward um, only a week into the job and the ward sister came up to me, sort of tapped me on the shoulder and, and asked me to go into the staff room. And they'd put on this whole like birthday cake and spread of everything. And I think all the other junior doctors were just so confused thinking, why am I getting this like special treatment? But um, so for me, it was, that was great, but actually it was still pretty, um, you know, I think it's any new job, isn't it? But um, yeah, well, responsibilities, et cetera, is, um, can be quite terrifying. Yeah, you obviously made a good impression. You had it easy, perhaps your colleagues would say. <laughs> I know, yeah, quite. I mean, I was happily sharing the cake with everyone. So um, hopefully hopefully everyone gained Hopefully that made up for it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Now, I want to ask you about celebrity doctors who are positioning themselves as nutrition experts. At the moment, there are lots of well-known doctors bringing out meal plans, books, nutrition regimes, or they're being sponsored by certain food brands. Do you think that they're overstepping their professional barriers and perhaps taking advantage of their doctor title? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a it's a really interesting question, isn't it? I imagine in a lot of dietetic departments, this kind of question gets asked around, doesn't it, between colleagues and every time you see something newly advertised or promoted, um, like most of my dietetic colleagues, I get a slight air of frustration And one of the first things I guess I tend to do a little bit is kind of critique um, maybe what the nutritional background is or training um, for, you know, some some doctors that have 
I guess, released, um, you know, nutrition or diet books, for example. Um, partly because I just think it's really important to make sure that realistically, when we're giving out information to patients, um, that you have the ability to, to state that this is coming from an evidence-based um, practice and that it's coming from a position of, I guess, really authority. So you want to make sure there is a specialist um, who is specifically trained in that area to be giving advice. And I do worry sometimes that I think sometimes the term doctor um, can be misleading in terms of just creating an air of kind of maybe authority or, or like you kind of alluded to previously about the sort of old hierarchy, how, you know, just because you're a doctor, you get listened to a bit more, for example. Um, so I guess, yeah, I do get slightly concerned sometimes, but I think equally it's a great thing to promote nutrition in terms of, um, you know, it's where it is in the sort of healthcare setting. And I think it can be really useful and be used for something really good. I think it's just about being a bit careful, isn't it, about where where that information is coming from and maybe what is the agenda of it. Um, and, and I guess I've, I've spoken to a lot of kind of dietetic colleagues, and I think we all have slight kind of reservations or we feel the need to kind of critique that. And I think that's quite a sensible thing to do, isn't it? Definitely. I think as dietitians, we're always trained to question the evidence and, um, you know, read beyond the headlines. But having said that, with your background as a dietitian, chef and doctor, you'd be very well placed to write your own book or something. I know. If, if only I had the time, um, Harriet, <laughs> to, to do such things, I'd absolutely love to. And I also wonder often when I see, you know, these things coming out, I really wonder, like, where do these people get the time from? But, you know, maybe as I become more efficient, as I progress through my training, who knows, there may be a book on the horizon one day, but sadly it's not going to be anytime soon because I just don't have time. Um, I'll stick to sort of sourdough baking as my kind of forte at the moment, but that's that's by no means a definite sort of health um, advice to anyone. So. <laughs> I think that sounds like a health, a tasty alternative. Maybe yeah. save, save the book for a rainy day or another yeah. lockdown. <laughs> well, then in that case, then please no book. But yeah, agree. I'll save it for another time. Now, just want to touch upon malnutrition. Obviously, this is a nutrition focused podcast for dietitians. As a doctor, what do you think your role is in the, pre the prevention and treatment of malnutrition? And does that differ from what you think a dietitian's role is? So this is this is really interesting, actually, because we we often actually. So when I was in my final year of medical school, um, my sort of one of my sort of key tutors at the time, we sort of um, collaborated and came up with a nutrition module that we published for the third and fourth year students. And actually, this was a big topic that we covered sort of malnutrition and just kind of really fundamental basics of kind of identifying um, malnutrition and how it doesn't always present in the most obvious kind of fashion. So I think this is something that I've worked with probably quite a lot. And I do think doctors can play quite a big role in this. I think one thing that we often kind of think about is, um, you know, malnutrition screening tools. So, um, for example, like the vapor led must um, screening tool, for example. And I think often doctors don't think that it's their responsibility because that screening tool in their, invariably sort of will be done by one of the nursing staff or the healthcare assistants on the ward. But I think actually in, in our sort of medical clerking, I think we can signpost and flag when a patient has clear signs of malnutrition or if there's any worry or concern. And I think the earlier that you kind of flag um, that situation is the earlier that you can act on it and get the right people involved. 
So I do think doctors can and definitely have a sort of, um, you know, position and, and a role to play in kind of malnutrition, whether it's identifying it, but also helping to make sure it's kind of treated in the appropriate way. That's good to hear. And in, in the departments you've worked in, have you felt that the um, collaboration between doctors and dietitians has been strong or are there certain areas where you feel there could be more work done to improve those relationships? So I think, I think actually I've always been quite lucky to be fair. I think it's, I don't know, maybe I've just been lucky in the sense that when I've worked in departments, um, often I sort of identify the dietitian, I guess, kind of straight away when I see a penge book um, sort of put, put in the ward somewhere. So I often end up forming a very good relationship with the dietitians on the ward. And that helps to kind of, I think, establish quite a good link between uh, you know the medical team and the dietitian so it just creates a bit more free-flowing communication and I think that's really key um, in these kind of areas where you're dealing with patients with uh, you know whether it be complex nutrition needs or or really just kind of making sure that nutritional screening for example is being done properly um, so I guess ultimately I've personally had quite a good experience but I imagine it probably varies quite a lot because you know not every team has a bunch of doctors that are nutrition savvy or you know given what we've said about previous nutrition training to junior doctors so uh, I think probably we could all safely say even as dietitians when I was working as a dietitian full-time you know there was definitely time points where I would get frustrated that maybe nutritional input or the communication wasn't as free-flowing or um, as good as it could be but I think as a junior doctor I've actually been quite lucky to be fair. Well, hopefully things will only get better as well with that new AFN framework for the curriculum. So onwards and upwards. Yes, I, yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's it's just really helped, I think, put nutrition on the agenda as well. Like it's been on the agenda for a while, but I think the new AFN sort of um, curriculum review has really helped, I think, um, medical schools to really implement some of this um, interaction. And I think moving forward, we probably will start to see that change kind of feed into, you know, how junior doctors work. Is there anything that you learnt um, as a doctor during your training that you think would have been useful when you were qualifying as a dietitian? Yeah, it's a good point, actually, because I almost sometimes think of it the other way around, where I think my, I remember train, when I was training as a dietitian, I remember uh, going into kind of like biochemistry and stuff quite in a, quite a lot of detail. What I mean biochemistry, I don't mean the, um, somehow awful lectures that we had to turn up and remember every single biochemical reaction involving, um, you know, anything to do with metabolism or the Krebs cycle. I mean, the sort of biochemistry when you're reading bloods, for example, and then sort of interpreting what these blood results mean. So I think that was definitely a big overlap between sort of dietetics and when I then transitioned to a doctor. But I think one thing that was really helpful is just being, as a doctor, you're encouraged to be a lot more hands-on so when you're reviewing your patients, obviously, we do OSCEs where we do physical examinations. Obviously, that's part of, um, you know, our role as, as medics. But at the same time, I guess when I was working full time as a dietitian, I would be sometimes quite hands off. And I remember I was doing a placement on an intestinal failure unit. And that's when I was really taught um, to be a bit more hands on in terms of gathering sort of um, anthropometric data and kind of um, other markers. Um, so for me, I think it was, as a doctor, the confidence of being more hands-on um, that I definitely developed, whereas I think in dietetic teaching, or at least 
a while ago. And I appreciate it's probably changed quite a bit, but I think being that bit more hands-on can be quite helpful. I think things are changing for dietitians. We've had a few episodes on the Dietitian Cafe where we've talked to advanced clinical practitioners. And these are dietitians who are being trained to have a more hands-on approach. Like you said, for example, they can insert NGs or they can insert pegs. So I think it's good to see that um, the profession is moving in that direction. But I agree with you, certainly during my training, there was not really any hands-on involvement at all. And I, and I think it's great because I think it just opens up the scope as well, that having that sort of widened scope of practice, I think it will really just create more opportunities for people in dietetics as well to kind of explore those kind of roles where you can be a bit more hands-on and it's almost the expectation that you would be. Um, but also I, I think sort of even generally now, I think people, um, you know, in their training in dietetics, when I've seen kind of dietetic students they are being a lot more sort of hands-on just in terms of when they're reviewing their patients and they're actually just, I guess, just having that confidence to, um, you know, establish that there's a lot more that we do other than just sort of, you know, reading the notes and interpreting, you know, um, a food record diary or whatever. But I think actually, you know, a lot of the anthropometric measures, I was really impressed actually that on the ITU that I worked in, um, the dietitians were using sort of various um, different markers um, to prove you know, whether someone was malnourished or how they were feeding the patient and kind of looking at outcomes in different ways. And I think all of that stuff really adds just more to the, um, I, I guess, really to the, the work that dietitians do. And I think that's definitely something that continues to move forward. Yeah, I think that's a great example because obviously most dietitians spend a lot of time learning about those anthropometric measurements. And you often think when you're learning about them, well, how realistic is this in clinical practice? But to hear from you that particularly during the pandemic, when hospitals were you know, more busy than usual, these sorts of measurements were being used. It, it really helps to ingrain that evidence-based message that is behind so many dietitians' clinical practice. I think, I think one thing that's been really helpful as well is, is the push for kind of dietitians to be much more involved in research. And research doesn't always have to be this big grand gesture of you doing a randomized controlled trial. It really can just be actually highlighting sort of best practice, whether it be audit work or whether you're doing sort of quality improvement projects within your um, departments. And I think, I mean, having access to kind of things like Twitter and Instagram, where I still follow lots of dietitians, I'm always just absolutely amazed and find it so interesting to see, I guess, really all of these things sort of happening and changing. And I think it does continue to just push the profession um, into being an even more sort of resourceful, but sort of helpful um, sort of allied health profession. Mm-hmm, definitely. Now, Tim, tell us what is next for you with your professional journey now that you're qualified as a doctor. What's next? Well, a book? <laughs> well we've established probably not a book. Um, and if the book does get written, it will probably involve some sourdough uh, recipes. But um, that aside... I think, to be honest, I'm looking now actually to go into GP training. So I've actually, as of last week, put my GP application in. um, And I'm now sort of looking really to do um, general practice um, and hoping to really combine um, my nutrition work alongside being a sort of general practitioner. And I think really it just gives me a lot of scope, I think, to help, I guess, in terms of primary care, but also being a sort of intermediate between kind of secondary care and primary care nutrition. So I think for me, I guess I'm hoping that, you know, GP, that's going to take a good few years to qualify. I'm sure I'll embrace all the challenges that that throws, hopefully. 
Um, but at the same time, I kind of want to make sure that I always keep a special interest in kind of nutrition and sort of gastroenterology as a sort of alongside that. So, um, so that's kind of what I'm aiming at at the moment. And um, I guess by being involved in kind of nutrition research and still doing um, some clinical work as well helps me helps me to hopefully achieve that. I have no doubt that you will be a fantastic GP. Um, will you keep calling yourself a dietitian? That's my question. Oh, I think it's it's going to get trickier every time because I think as time moves on and I'm having to do more and more, obviously, sort of medical um, medical work, I think it becomes a bit harder to um, keep up to date with absolutely everything. So whether it be, uh, you know, in the medical world and the nutrition world. So far, it's been a bit easier because I've had quite a flexible um, time for the last year where I've been able to kind of dip in and out of medical roles and um, nutrition roles. But I think as time goes on, I think maybe my dietetic component or hat may have to get put in the cupboard, um, so to speak. And uh, But I would like to still make sure that I have, uh, you know, some additional, I guess, purpose and, and relevance to nutrition, because it's definitely an area that's very close to my heart. And I think um, it's an area I still want to pursue as a specialty, um, just obviously outside of the remit of being a directly sort of, um, you know, practicing dietitian. Yeah, and of course, you're doing lots of great work for organisations like NEDPRO, which help to bridge that gap between medicine and, and nutrition. Um, yeah, I've really, to be honest, I've really enjoyed like the work that I've previously done with NEDPRO and the work I'm sort of currently doing with the, the Vapor uh, Medical Training Committee. So we're a committee on the sort of British Association for Parental and Natural Nutrition. And again, I always feel like I'm uh, masquerading as this kind of um, imposter because most of the people on the committee are all sort of gastro registrars or people that are just about to become consultants. So they're very, in the medical world, they're a lot more senior than I am. But I provide this slightly unique stand where because of my nutrition and dietetic training, um, it's been a really interesting and really great collaboration. So I've, I've really enjoyed both NEDPRO and, you know, working with BAPE and, um, and I'm hoping to sort of continue that as well. It's great to see. And, and I know you're very active on social media and you're a real positive role model to other dietitians and doctors if we have anybody listening who's either a dietetic student or they've perhaps qualified as a dietitian and they're wondering whether it's right for them to go into medicine what would your advice be to them oh that's really funny because I think over the last year I've probably had about five emails with that kind of um, that kind of question actually and I think I think the one thing that's exciting and people should remember is there's lots of new roles going on with dietetics. Um, like we mentioned about the scope of becoming a bit more hands-on in terms of being advanced practitioners. Um, there's obviously the prescribing course now as well. And I think it's just really worth determining whether or not, is it something where you just want to be in a role that has a slightly different um, or unique um, kind of role to play within the MTT and the patient care, et cetera. Or actually, is it something a bit more fundamental? Um, it is a long, it definitely is a long degree to kind of um, embark on in terms of changing that career. So I just say don't, don't make a sort of hasty decision. Explore other areas that you might be interested in. Um, make sure, obviously, you know, you've kind of sat down and you've spoken to, to various other sort of junior doctors that have been through the process. Um, I guess it's really just about information gathering and just making sure that, you know, you've made a really informed decision. And I think for some people, it will be completely the right decision and other people may decide 
that actually like going into a different specialty um, or sub-specializing in an area that has these different kind of skill sets um, may be something that really, you know, uh, ticks all their boxes or for example, even doing a PhD, for example. So I think um, that there's so many opportunities, but just make sure you're informed before you kind of make any big decisions. Um, that's probably the best advice I can give. That's really helpful. So don't run before you, is it don't run before you jump or don't jump before you run? I can't even remember. It's the first one. I think, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know either. But yeah, no, yeah, something about running, jumping. Yeah, basically just be informed, make a nice rational decision before you regret going back to university for another four years because, yeah, you need to be committed to um, to really do it. Yeah, definitely. And it's also it's an expensive investment, I imagine, as well, going back to study. Yes, Harriet. Yeah, that's why maybe I should be looking into this like sourdough book. Maybe I can make some well, that's all we have time for today, Tim. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing your valuable knowledge with our listeners. Tim's social media handles will be linked in the show notes for you to take a look at. And a huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you do enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing or leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear about the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you very much for listening. And our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming very soon. 